I'm going to tell you a little bit about our work in nanotechnology. Then I'm going to go into the, the presentation of the power of the scriptures in the life of a professor and what it can do for pro- what the scriptures can do for a professor. And, and, uh, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about, uh, about the essentials of Christianity. So this is an overview of some of the things that we work on in our group. And I'll just take you through these one at a time. This is laser-induced graphene. Graphene is normally made at 1,000 degrees on a metal surface like copper or nickel to get a single-layer sheet. It is using furnaces. We developed a method in 2014 to make graphene foams on polyimage sheets, and then we learned we could do it on most any surface. So this is not dropping some sort of ink on top of a piece of bread. This is actually where we convert the atoms of that carbohydrate, of that bread, into graphene. So we rearrange the atoms so that it goes from, from carbohydrate to being graphene. We do the same thing on a coconut, and then we turn the coconut into a supercapacitor so we can build devices directly on materials like this. We've done it on wood, on cork, on paper. Uh, we're, we're coming out with a, uh, uh, with a publication called uh, um, Graphene Art, where we will, we will uh, uh, put graphene, where we actually have graphene uh, on paper, where we can, we can make figures. And in fact, my students have made a picture of me out of graphene by converting the paper into graphene. So I was certainly flattered by that. Um, I think I'm the only person in the world to have my picture in graphene. Uh, and then if you look at it, you would never know, though. So you just have to take my word for it. This is how we unzip carbon nanotubes into graphene nanoribbons. We, we insert things like potassium or potassium permanganate, and we'll split these into graphene nanoribbons. Graphene is single sheets of, single atom thick sheets of graphite, but it, it's, it's this chicken wire-like material, and it's nice conductive carbon-based material. And I'm going to show you in a, in a moment what we can do with these graphene nanoribbons. This is, the, these have been commercialized now. They were commercialized by EMD Merck, has licensed the technology, and it's sold now through Sigma Aldrich, which is now Millipore Sigma. <clears throat> we worked uh, for a long time in my group on, on this memory, this type of memory. This is a new type of memory made out of silicon oxide, so it's transparent. And uh, uh, this is now in a public, this is, uh, the company has started, the company has gone public, and so it's, it's a computer memory company. A lot of these have, have, have gotten a lot of work. So, for example, on the laser-induced graphene, we published the first paper in 2014. We've had about 22 papers since then, but there's a paper a week coming out in the literature on that topic. So you see how, how well it, it's transferred to the world for many different applications. <clears throat> we have a whole other area where we're developing drugs for traumatic brain injury and stroke. And we're all, it's also quite effective against something called microbleeds, which, which occurs when people get older. You get tiny little hemorrhages. And so that's a company. That company will probably start fairly soon <clears throat> to begin to, to work on getting that through the clinic. This is uh, inorganic supercapacitors that we've made, uh, and this is for charging to, to have cars accelerate quickly. We've been able to take asphalt, asphalt, which is uh, uh, the material that roads are made out of. We treat it with potassium 
uh, uh, hydroxide at 900 degrees under an inert atmosphere, and that will cause pores to open in this to give us a very high surface area material. And we can trap over 200 weight percent of CO2. And we're using that to trap CO2 out of, uh, uh, from natural gas because when natural gas comes out of the ground, it comes out with anywhere from 1% to 10% CO2 in it. That CO2 is generally separated and vented to the air. <clears throat> so this is the pre-combustion CO2, and we'd like to be able to trap that. That, that is a process been licensed by Apache, which is a very large oil company. Uh, this is the leg of a cockroach on a copper foil. We heat that up to 1,000 degrees, and we get very nice graphene out of that. You say, well, why would you want to do it out of a cockroach? Well, we showed, we showed that we could do it from polymers, and we showed we could do it from sugar. And then I said, let's do it from something that has negative value. What has negative value? <clears throat> so we did it from a cockroach. We did it from dog feces. <clears throat> Any carbon source, you can rearrange the atoms at 1,000 degrees on copper to make graphene. We did it with, a, with Girl Scout cookies. A box of Girl Scout cookies is $4. If you were to convert all the, girls, all the carbon in a box of Girl Scout cookies to graphene, you would be able to sell that graphene for $15 billion. So it shows you that the value of a material is not in the elements themselves. The value of a material is in the, how the, the elements are built into molecules and those molecules are arranged into higher order structure. That's what builds the value. I'll give you another example of that. If you take, for example, what is the value of a human being setting aside the spiritual value, which, which we, can't, we can't put a number on, but just if you look at it as a, as a biological entity, say a robot, I mean, what, what would that be of value? If you look at robots that are made today, they're nowhere close to what a human being is. What's the value of that? And, and uh, uh, insurance companies put a value on a middle-aged male at, at $7 million because they have to put a value on, on everything. So, so, so uh, uh, these actuaries work that out. But once you burn that body and cremate that body, what is the value of the CO2 and water that comes out of that? It's less than a penny. So you've got the same atomic content, but it's how it's arranged that gives you enormous value. This is a bottle of graphene quantum dots. This was $90,000 worth of graphene quantum dots. When we started our work, graphene quantum dots were $1 million per kilogram. Uh, quantum dots are nice because you can put them into things that continue to fluoresce and, uh, as, as opposed to organic fluorophores, which photobleach, so you can get very vibrant colors out of them. Uh, most quantum dots were highly toxic. Carbon quantum dots turn out not to be toxic. And so we developed a process to make these, and, and uh, um, we learned how to make it from coal. Coal is $60 per ton, one step from coal to something that has a value of a million dollars per kilogram. So now, of course, the price has gone way down because the availability is much greater. And that's a company that has started uh, called Dots, and, and uh, uh, that's it. That, that was bought by the Israelis, and now it's manufactured in, in the, both Israel and the United States. This is a sheet of graphene with carbon nanotubes coming seamlessly out of the graphene, so we, can, we learned how to grow carbon nanotubes seamlessly from graphene. 
We're using these in batteries because they have a very high surface area, about 2,500 meters squared per gram. So as soon as we, we saw that and there was ohmic conduction from the top of the tubes down to the graphene layer and then down to the copper layer below that, we learned that we, we would have a really great electrode. So this is transferred into a new battery company called Tubes, and that is, uh, um, that is now beginning to produce prototype batteries just outside of Houston. And uh, it's done with its Series A, and, and, and they're really the best batteries in the world. So the Gen 1 batteries are probably going to be out in about two years. They'll be 1.5x the capacity of your current battery, but they will charge in five minutes. And uh, uh, Gen 2 will, will, will be 2x. So we're, we've done a lot of work with the bat on the battery side. This is a sheet of graphene oxide that is plugging the hole, in, in, and uh, we use this to plug holes and when, you drill, when you're drilling uh, to get oil, you have high pressure, you're drilling, and sometimes the drilling fluid will infiltrate the pristine formation and plug up the formation that you ultimately want to have the oil and gas coming out of. So this plugs the hole so the drilling fluid can't get in. What you're looking at is a single atom thick sheet of graphene oxide. If you take a sheet of paper, put it over your hand like this, you push down, the sheet of paper will splay out. That's exactly what this is doing, and the ends are curl curling around then. And then when you release the pressure, these will just get pushed out by the oil and gas. So this is a, a material that, that, that's been licensed by a company called Schlumberger, which is a $60 billion uh, oil service company in Houston. Uh, we, we do a lot on trapping of radioactive elements from water using graphene oxide and now much less expensive materials. This, is a, this material has been licensed into a new company called Zonko. Uh, this is, this is a, a, a nanocar, and the way the nanocars work is you shine a light on them, and this spins... And so this is an image of what a nanocar would look like on a surface with that spinning motor that pushes it along. But that's just an image. That motor actually spins at 3 million rotations per second. So it's a very fast motor. And so you can see the nanocars moving across the surface. Uh, we've taken the same motors. We put peptides on them so they can recognize certain cell surfaces. Then we turn them on, and they drill through the cell. In one minute, the cell is dead. A cell could never build up a resistance to this because it's not a chemical mechanism. It is a mechanical mechanism. Just like a cell cannot build a resistance to a scalpel, this is a mechanical effect. So we drill through cell membranes. We're using it, of course, for cancer chemotherapy, and we're looking at it to kill uh, super bacteria, things that have, have built up immunities to chemical methods. They can't build up an immunity to this. And this goes to the cell of interest, and then we activate them, and they drill through the cell cell undergoes necrosis within about a minute. I talked about these graphene nanoribbons. Let me just show you one slide on where we're going with those graphene nanoribbons. This is a mouse, uh, I'm sorry, a rat, that it has had its spinal cord completely cut in two at C5 of the base of the neck. We put one drop of graphene nanoribbons, 1% solution of the graphene nanoribbons in a polyethylene glycol matrix, and the, and the the edges are pegylated so that after two weeks after surgery, 14 days after surgery, the rat is walking again. The first week, his brain, her, uh, uh, the brain is remapping the connections because the connections are not the same as they used to be, but the brain figures that out. So we depend on the plasticity of the brain to figure that out. And so here's the rat after three weeks, just, just ready to get going, and, and uh, you, you just, you'd see, you see your right, right, uh, uh, 
begin to, as, we, as, as she's transferred into the, the holding container there, you see she's going to try to run away after what's been done to her. We understand that. But she scored a 19 out of 21 on a mobility scale, 21 being the optimal mo- mobility, normal mobility. Scored a 19 out of 21 after 21 days after surgery. And so this is a new company that it's just started up called Neurocords for working on, on uh, uh, the, the spinal cord repair and also optic nerve repair. So we're beginning to see the refiring of optic nerves, connecting them together. And so through that, we want to do whole eye transplant, something that's never been done before. And then you can really make, make the blind see. And so we've already made the, the deaf here. We already have a formulation that, that's for that. We're making the lame walk and the blind see. So this is, we want to do the works of Jesus Christ right there in the laboratory. Okay, <clears throat> so now I'm going to switch, switch gears. <clears throat> I've talked about our nanotechnology work. Now I'm going to talk about, is there a prescription for thriving in life? Is there a prescription for thriving? And the scriptures tell us there is. It says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. Let me just mention at the outset, my idea of prosperity means that you're doing what God wants you to do. And you have no regrets. He never promises to keep us from suffering. In fact, he speaks just the opposite. But what he does is he keeps us from the despair of suffering. The scriptures are extremely specific here. It tells us that if we, if we, make, if we have delight in his law and we meditate on it day and night, if we meditate on the word of God day and night, Again, the scriptures are very specific. There is no promise in the Bible for reading and meditating on the scriptures three days a week. Maybe there's a blessing. Maybe there isn't. I have no idea. The promise is for every day. That's the promise. It's for every day. And so I started taking the word of God seriously 40 years ago and started meditating on the word of God every day. Every day. The scripture puts it in two, two ways, day and night and every day. You meditate on the word of God. When everybody else is drying up around you, you will be bearing fruit tremendously. This is what it says. Believe it. This is exactly what it says. If we take the word of God seriously, we will fall into the blessings of this promise. If we don't, we'll be just like everyone else in the world. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. If you take this word of God, and you meditate on it day and night, you'll be careful to do according to all that's written in it. And that's what happens with the Bible. You open up the Bible and you go, "Uh uh-oh, speaking into my life again. I encourage you to open up the Word of God and to say, Lord, speak to me. Speak to me through the Scriptures. My reading program, you don't have to copy it because it's not scriptural, but my reading program is, I start reading at Genesis chapter 1, 
and I read through to Revelation chapter 22. When I'm done, I start again. And I've been doing this for 40 years. And I say, Lord, speak to me according to the portion that I am in. Speak to me. And so often he speaks to me from the word of God. He speaks to me. For the very things that are going to come at me on that day. Go figure. God answers prayer. He says, you do this, you'll make your way prosperous because then you'll be careful to do according to all that's written in it. I've probably meditated on this verse more than any other verse in the Bible. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. This is the scriptural promise. If we meditate, it is my meditation all the day, every day meditating on the Word of God. What will be the outcome? The outcome is that we will be wiser than all of our enemies. We will have more insight than all our our teachers. Now, I have had the great blessing of learning from tremendous people, tremendous teachers, This promise does not just say that it is for Bible teachers. It's just been all your teachers. That's what it says. That's what it says. I encourage you to take the Word of God and believe it. That if you make the Word of God your meditation every day, He'll give you more insight than all your teachers. That's the promise. The thing about the Word of God is it has to happen. It can't happen any other way. When people say, I will be there, they may or may not come. When God says, this shall happen, it has to happen. Heaven and earth will split apart to make that happen. It has to happen. This cannot but happen in a life if you will take this seriously and believe it. It has to happen. You will have more insight than all your teachers if you will make the Word of God your daily meditation. I don't work at a Christian university. I rarely get the opportunity to address a room full of professors who are predominantly Christians. I encourage you this day to take the Word of God and believe it because it has to happen. Let me give you just one example of what happens when a scientist has faith. It was September 3rd, 1993. I had just gotten tenure and I was invited back to Purdue University to give a talk. I had gotten my PhD from Purdue. And I was staying right there in the Purdue Memorial Union. It's a, it's a hotel. And, and uh, I was staying in the hotel that's run by the students that are in hotel and restaurant management. Very nice hotel. And I was praying that morning, as I always do, on my knees, reading the scriptures and praying. And I was reading, as I read that morning, I read this verse. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will 
happen. I said, Lord, you are raising my faith. That's what happens when you read the scriptures. It will raise your faith. My faith was being raised. I said, Lord, and I always pray before any lecture that I go into, secular, Christian, I pray. I say, Lord, touch the people there by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's more grand when you're addressing a non-Christian audience because they don't understand the power of the Holy Spirit when it hits them. They're shocked. What just happened? I said, Lord, I pray that my seminar, I was just a young professor, just gotten tenure, would be the best seminar in that department ever. Now, the department was more than 100 years old. How was I going to be able to know if it's the best seminar ever? So I said, Lord, if it's the best seminar, how am I going to know? Because I want it to be the best seminar ever in that department. You're talking about a department with, with uh, um, 120 faculty in the department. 120 faculty. For 100 years, this department's been going on. How am I going to know? I said, Lord, I pray that if it's the best seminar, that my professor, H. Nagishi, who at the time didn't have the Nobel Prize, this was 1993, when I worked with him, which was, which was in the 80s, he didn't have the Nobel Prize. Now, now he's a big shot, he's got a Nobel Prize. But I pray that he says that it was a super seminar. Now that's not a word that he normally used. The reason this meant something to me is because anytime I brought him a good result as a graduate student, he would say, pretty good for your level. And I never got a man above the man's waist. So I said, Lord, none of this for your level stuff. I pray that he says that it was super. Well, I got done giving that seminar that day and I knew God had really blessed and I knew that the Holy Spirit had moved upon, upon that, that group. As soon as I got done, he was sitting right on the front row, right on the end. He stood up and he said, Supa! Supa! I said, Lord, you answered prayer. Sitting right behind him was the man for whom he worked. A man who had taught some of my classes when I was a graduate student. And that was H.C. Brown. He had won the Nobel Prize in 1979 for the hydroboration reaction which anybody who's taken organic chemistry knows if they've taken it like last semester. After that, they might have forgotten it. But, but um, he was sitting right behind him. And he had already had a Nobel Prize at the time. And I went up and I shook his hand. I said, thank you for coming to the seminar today. And he held on to my hand. He said, I have to tell you something. That was the best seminar I've ever seen in my life. The man was in his 80s at the time. And I said, that's very kind of you to say that. He said, I'm not saying it to be kind. I really mean it. <laughs> and that's the nice thing about people of the world. I mean, they just tell you like it is. God confirms his word. God confirms his word. There's nothing magic in my life. I just believe the promise. That if... I meditate on the scriptures every day. There will be success. That's the promise. Will we believe it? The application of the scriptures in my career. So one day I was upset with a colleague 
and, and uh, I, I was upset with a colleague, and, and um, because, and, and I'll tell you the situation, we, he had been hired a year after I was hired, so, and then he came into my office one day, he came from Caltech, and, and we were both young assistant professors together, he came into my office one day, and remember, I had been hired a year before him, we had each had our own tenure track position, we weren't competing for the same position, and I remember he put his elbow up on my file cabinet, he looked down at me as I'm sitting at my desk, he said, I'll get tenure before you ever do. And, and re- remember, I don't work in a Christian environment. And, and uh, I thought, man, that's, a, that's not a very nice thing to say. You know, it's really kind of ugly. I mean, that's like walking up to somebody and saying, I'm better looking than you. Even if, even if it were true, it'd be an ugly thing to say. And no doubt he was very good. So it might have been true. But anyway, God really blessed my career. I mean, it just took off. God blessed it over and over again. And this young guy wasn't getting any grants in. And things weren't working out well for him at all. And so one day a student came to my office. She said, you know, I really like you. You know, you've been good to us in the class. She said, that other professor, he's always saying bad stuff about you all the time. I thought, what is with this guy? And so I got really upset. I went over to his office. I knocked on the door. And I, and I was really going to give it to him. And he wasn't in. Then as I stood outside his door, the Lord reminded me of the scripture that I was memorizing with my children at that time. We were memorizing all of Luke chapter 6. There's this portion that says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. When you take the word of God and make it your daily meditation, the Lord speaks through that. That was his instruction. And I remember standing outside his office door. I just turned around, leaned back by the side of the door there. And I said, okay, Lord, I'll do that every day. I will pray for him. So that's where I would normally go pray every day. This was the chapel on campus, Rutledge Chapel. This was at the University of South Carolina where I taught for 11 years. And I would go right up there to the front of the steps. And I would kneel down every afternoon and I would pray. And so I included him in my prayers every afternoon because I got in that habit of praying, which I maintain to this day, of being like Daniel, praying three times a day, morning, sometime in the afternoon, and then in the evening. And uh, again, you don't have to do that. I just wanted to follow the pattern of Daniel. That guy's career just started taking off. He got big grants. His group started growing. He did so well. After two years, he did so well, he got an offer from another university. He accepted the offer, and he left, and I was so happy. (laughs) You know, the Lord showed me that so many of the problems that I have in life is the problem with my own heart. And once my heart was dealt with by praying for this guy every day, he didn't bother me much anymore after that. And then God could take that problem out of my life because it had already been dealt with. God answers. God speaks through the scriptures. This is what he will do for us as faculty. This is what he do for us. Nothing magic with what I have. Practical applications of the scriptures. So when, when I was a graduate student, I got married at the end of my first year of graduate school. And a couple years later, we had a daughter. And, and my wife and I, before I got married, I always had guys into my room and, and we would have Bible studies. And then when I got married... 
Um, my wife went right along in the ministry, and, and we, we started having students in our home. We had a little graduate student apartment, and we had people in our home, and, and we'd always have these college students, and the group was always growing, and my wife would always feed meals to these people, and these students would come in, and they were just messy. I mean, she'd serve them chicken, and I'd see the food falling all off the plate, and they didn't even know it. Students are just inherently messy. They don't mean to be. They just, they come up, they'll, they'll put their feet right on your coffee table and think they're in the dormitory. It's okay. And it doesn't even bother them. They don't even think about what they're doing wrong. And I remember that, that they used to come in walking in out of the snow and they wouldn't even shake the snow off their feet and there's all this mud coming in. And my daughter, who was like a year old, she would, she would crawl behind them and pick up the snowballs and eat it off what came off their feet. One day, a couple days after the meeting we had in our home, I saw her eating a chicken bone that she found between the cushions on the couch that had fallen in there. And I, got, I thought, this is just too much. I mean, the home is being trashed. I don't want these students in my home anymore. And I started praying about this. Lord, what am I going to do? And I read this verse. Where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of the ox. And the power of God fell. When you get in the habit of meditating on the scriptures and say, Lord, speak to me. Some verse you will read and it just grips you. And you know the Holy Spirit is speaking. It will just grab hold of you. And the Lord was saying to me, you can keep your little apartment clean, but if you want to see much increase in these people's lives, it's going to get messy, but I'll take care of your apartment. Never will our home be closed to Christian service. To this day, my wife feeds 75 college students a week in our home. We're going to use it for the Lord's work. And He has blessed us, blessed us, blessed us. I have a bigger home than most professors. And it's not in money that I inherited. God has blessed over and over again. We needed a big home. You have that many students in your home, you need a big home. And now my children are grown and gone and we still need that big home. We don't need all the bedrooms upstairs, but we need all the room downstairs. God blesses. God works. He gets a hold of your heart. I got story after story of the way God has worked in my life, speaking to me through the Scriptures, delivering me. The admonition to value my family. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. These are the promises that I can take hold of. Because the Scriptures have taken hold of my heart. I have every right to take hold of God's Word because it's true. In fact, I'm commanded to do it. To take hold of His Word. In faith. You know, I had daily times with my my family. When my my oldest daughter was was about four, the younger one was one, my father-in-law was visiting. Godly man. He said, Jim, I see you're very busy. There was a young professor, very busy. He said, you need to start really having quality time with your children where you're teaching them the Word of God. And I said, you know, you're right. I mean, it was like Jethro coming. I mean, I, you're right. And, and so I started waking up. So I, I'd always leave my house at 6 in the morning, and I still do to this day. And I'd get my kids up at 5.30. My wife and I would get them to, in, in, into the, on the couch there and we just started going through the scriptures with them. And I would read from Hurlbut's story of the Bible and just take them from beginning to end. That classic, classic text. 
And, uh, and then we'd get on our knees together and pray together. And we'd also recite the scriptures that we were memorizing together as a family. And from the time that the kids were coming home from the hospital, I'd pick them up right out of the crib. I mean, they're sleeping, they're still coming right out. And, and we had family devotion from 5.30 to 6 every morning with my children. And did they complain? I mean, they just grew up with it. There was no complaint and that this is all they knew. And, and uh, you know, sometimes when they're teenagers, well, what are you waking me up for? I, I don't know what I'm waking you up for. Why would I ever wake you up at 5.30? What a strange thing. It's going down now. And, and so they'd come down and, and we'd have family devotions together. Disciplined schedule of work time and family time. So I'd leave at 6 in the morning, come home at 6 in the evening, be home in time for dinner. And uh, uh, we have to do that because we have to value our family. And then colleagues would see this and they'd ask me, how, how do you manage your family like that? You know what really stands out? Is when unbelievers see our families. And I remember, there's Rick Smalley who had won the 96th Nobel Prize, the one who recruited me to Rice in, two, in, in 1999. And uh, he used to ask me, Jim, how do you do this? He had had three wives, three broken marriages. When I... and, and, and uh, um, and, and then, then, then I met him, he had his fourth wife. And he just couldn't understand how I did this. He says, you've got a treasure. you just got a treasure. Your kids like you. Your wife likes you. Your students like you. How do you do this? This is a Nobel Prize winner. You'd think he'd know this. But he doesn't. Because this is revealed to us in the Scriptures. The treasure we have in the Scriptures is worth so much. The world sees this and says, what are you? Where did you do this? Where, how do you understand this? It's all in the Bible. This is what instructs me. Hard work coupled with a balanced family life. I wrote an article in 2007. I had won some award and they asked me to write an article about my career. And I was right, this is what I wrote in the Journal of Organic Chemistry when I was talking about my career. I, it says I submitted 37 proposals in my first 36 months as a faculty member. And most of those were single principal investigators since collaborative proposals were less common in those days. And that's when, you know, computers don't do what they do now. You know, I would leave a space and then, you know, cut and paste things. And cut and paste used to have a real meaning. You have draw the structures, you cut them out, you paste them in. And then I'd, 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 I'd and then, you know, you'd, you'd run off like 15 copies of this and you'd have to go through every copy to make sure all the pages were there before you put it in a box and mailed it to the National Science Foundation or the National Institutes of Health. There's a lot of work, but I worked hard. But I'm so glad I didn't trash my family along the way, as so many people do. Here's what I wrote also in that article. On the days of receiving the declination of funding letters from the NIH, sadness certainly followed. I would always call my wife, Shireen, because she was repeatedly there to reassure me of my self-worth. And my children were still there to call me daddy. Hence, I endeavored to dwell only momentarily on the harsh, sometimes, sometimes even unnecessarily personal comments of the reviewers. My family saw me through. Treasure your family. Treasure your family. If you're going through marital trouble, I urge you, stick with it. Go to counseling. I've been to counseling. We've been to counselors. And every time the counselors would become our friends and didn't want to charge us anything. And, uh, and then they become our personal friends and start coming over the home. And, and, uh, uh, but we worked on it. We worked on it because we wanted to make this thing work. And I am so happy I did. 
There's my family. This is the most current picture I have, just taken about a month ago. My son-in-law is not here. My, my daughter lives overseas in Jerusalem. She's a mediator between Palestinians and Israelis in Jerusalem, and her husband works there too, and he couldn't make it on this last trip. Here's her two daughters, my two granddaughters that live in Jerusalem. This is my wife of 36 years, uh, uh, Shireen. And, and I, know, I know what some of you guys are thinking. I know that because I, I think the same thing about other men. Like, how did he get such a beautiful woman? And, and I remember the thought always goes through my mind when I see these men with wives that are so much better looking than they are that they must be really rich. And so you can think what you want. But anyway, she married me when I was poor. That's the amazing thing. Um, this is, this is my, my next daughter, Sabrina. She's an attorney in Houston. This is my son, Josiah. He's in his last year of medical school in Atlanta. And this is my youngest son, Ben. He is an a, uh, investment banker with J.P. Morgan. And so, you know, I come from a Jewish home. So people say, you know, I still got that in me. Got, got, got the, the doctor, the lawyer, and the banker. I mean, so <laughs> I'm just fitting into that. So the scriptures are actually our life. The scriptures are our life. How did, how did Moses summarize this thing? If you look at what Moses said, how did he summarize all of this? When a person's about to defend their PhD, I get up and I say a few things about their research work and about the person, and then I hand the mantle to them. They're about to defend their thesis and then go on and carry that work out with them into the world. How did Moses summarize 40 years of instruction? This is like 10 PhDs of instruction. How do you summarize this? Here's what Moses said in Deuteronomy 32, verse 45 through 47. When Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even the words of this law. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. What I am sharing with you today is your life. The scriptures are your life. You only get one shot at this thing. Do it right. And if you haven't, correct it now. This is your life. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, that's Paul speaking, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. If you practice these things of believing the word of God, of what's going to happen if you meditate day and night upon the word of God, you will attain peace. I have never known anybody to say, I want to have a lousy day today. I just want to have a life just filled with trouble. Nobody wants that. Everybody wants peace. How do you get it? The scriptures tell us peace comes through practice. You practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. God has an appeal to us and a loving call. I don't assume in any audience that everybody is a believer. If you are a believer here, I'm going to read some verses. If they offend you, then think about what is offending you from these verses. If you're an unbeliever here, this is for you. I make an appeal because God is very gracious. He appeals. This is God's appeal. He says, I, even I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Such a beautiful thing. God said, I will wipe out your transgressions, and I'll not remember your sins. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God offers a free gift. 
He holds out to you the gift of His Son, which is the best, greatest model you can have of love, is one's own son. What happens when you're with your children and a big dog comes running up? You put your children behind you. I'll take the bite. Not my child. You protect your child. The greatest thing you can do for a person is not to give your own life. It's to offer them the life of your child. That's exactly what God did. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the bar that I am willing to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that he's risen from the dead. And it's not just a spiritual resurrection. The scriptures clearly tell us that Jesus, at the end of Luke's gospel, he stood with them. He said, look, look, see, touch me. See, I have flesh and bones. He said, you got something here to eat? And they thought Jesus is always multiplying fish. He loved fish. Give him some fish. If he eats fish, he's Jesus. They gave him a piece of fish, it says, and he ate it. He says, a spirit doesn't eat as you see I'm eating. I'm flesh and bones. Has anyone here ever seen a spirit eat? No. So, spirits don't eat. Jesus was physically raised from the dead. He says to Thomas, come here, stick your finger in the hole in my hand. Stick your hand into the hole in my side and be not unbelieving, but believing. And then he says, you believe because you see. Blessed is he who does not see and yet believes. God has placed the truth of the resurrection in the heart of every human being. And that I know because I preach the gospel so often to so many people who believe based upon the preaching. There is no understanding how you can take this data point that we hardly ever see of resurrections. And you speak about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and they believe because God visits his elect. This is the threshold. If you say you're a Christian and you don't believe in the physical resurrection, then you must analyze. Test yourself, the scriptures say. Test yourself. I'm not testing you. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Examine yourself and see if you believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you don't, then think about what the scriptures say that he's risen from the dead. God doesn't, he will appeal to us, but ultimately he will command. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. It is a command. God commands us to believe. It's a command. God warns us, very gracious in warning us. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I would never say such a thing. I'm just reading from the Bible. I would never say such a thing. God says it. And he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. God has a way of redemption. He goes further. God's description of the hell that awaits those of us unwilling to heed his warning. God tells us what it would be like. The realm of the dead below is all astir to meet you at your coming. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you. They will say to you, you also have become weak as we are. You've become like us. 
All your pomp has been brought down to the grave, along with the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you, and worms cover you. Let me show you your bedroom. See those maggots? That's your bed. And as soon as you lie down, that pile of worms over there is going to cover you. That's the way God described it. I have no idea. I've never been there. God described it that way. Jesus also described hell. Where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Remember that bed of worms? Oh, they just happen to eat them continuously. And you can't kill them. They don't die. And the fire is not quenched. The Word of God speaks with precision here. He's not just speaking in esoteric things. This is the description of hell. This is what Jesus says. He must know. He's created all things. God's further warning. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, all liars, will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. I'm a chemist. I know what burning sulfur looks like. It's nasty. Any of us here today that fit into one of those categories? Anywhere in that? All we can do is confess that we're sinners. This is the verse that hit me. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's what hit me when the gospel was presented to me as a Jewish kid at the age of 18. That's the verse that grabbed my heart and showed me that I was a sinner. It wasn't just what I did with my hands. It was was what was in my mind and in my heart that convicted me. We must realize that we are sinners if we're going to receive a Savior. We can't say that God didn't warn us. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the way God described it. A lake of fire. Sulfur fire. That's exactly what a sulfur fire looks like, actually. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We can't say that he didn't warn us. Do not delay in heeding God's call. Because I called you and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention, and you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes, when your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then you will call on me, but I will not answer. They will call, they will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Again, I would never say something like that. That's the word of my Lord. He said it. God extends his loving mercy. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a free gift. It is a gift. Receive the gift. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will remember your sins no more. The compassion of God. God extends again his call, again extends his call, maybe for the last time. We don't know that we'll hear it again. We don't know. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The call of the Lord is, come, come. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray.
Abba, I pray this day, this day, that if there's anyone here who does not know you, or anyone here whose heart has told them that they have not passed the test for not embracing the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that they would say with me this day, Lord, forgive me because I am a sinner. Forgive me. Come into my life. Thank you because Jesus is Lord and he has risen from the dead. Father, that they would pray that prayer this day and not let it go by. That they pray that prayer this day. And Father, I pray for the others here who may never have taken your word for what it says and let their times of meditation in the word of God become sporadic. Father, I pray that they would take hold this day from your word and believe it and trust your word that you are a good and a gracious God. Father, I pray that you get hold of their hearts this day. Father, for the hurting families represented here this day, Father, I pray that you'd rebuild those, that you would restore the years that the worms have eaten as they take hold of what your word says to make it their daily meditation. Father, do that, I pray. Have mercy on the marriages that are represented here this day. Have mercy on the parents that are here this day. Father, your grace abound upon them, I pray, for the glory of Jesus and in his name. Amen. I'd be glad to take questions. Um, so the assumption that we're targeting car batteries is incorrect. So um, car batteries, and, and it's, it's just a corporate strategic decision. Car batteries, uh, uh, you have to make a lot of big ones to fill a car. Uh, if you do cell phone batteries, people get really upset if they occasionally catch fire. And I'm talking like one in a million catch fire. It really bothers people. So <laughs> we, we, are, we are targeting actually the drone market. Drones are just exploding. And the, the drone market will pay a lot to be able to stay up 50% longer and charge in five minutes. They'll pay a lot for that. And if you have one in a million fires, they don't care, right? So, so it, it was just a tr strategic decision. It could well be extrapolated to car batteries. How they're going to respond in the environments that car batteries see from Minnesota in the wintertime to Phoenix in the summertime, uh, we've not tested under those conditions, so we just don't know. But these are not lithium ion. They're lithium metal batteries rechargeable lithium metal because we solved the dendrite problem and then we had to develop a new cathode to be able to, to work collaboratively with that anode. Right. So, you know, I, I don't pray, Lord, make my reaction work. <laughs> and and, and the, re the reason I don't pray that prayer because if, if I publish that paper and somebody else can't get it to work too, there's a big problem there. <laughs> so whatever I'm able to do, somebody else has to be able to do and, and, uh, um, but what I do pray all the time is I pray, Lord, make me like Bezalel. That's my daily prayer. Bezalel was the man whom Moses commissioned and God called to build the tabernacle. That man was amazing. 
It says, God took Bezalel, first of all, filled him with the Spirit of God. Then he gave him wisdom, and he gave him knowledge. Then he gave him understanding in how to work in gold, in silver, and in bronze, and in fabrics, and in wood, and in stone cutting, and in setting, and the ability to teach it. That man worked across so many different fields. My prayer is that I would be like Bezalel. And, and all I can do is testify of God's grace. I have everything from computer memory companies to drug companies, materials companies in between, battery companies, and, and uh, um, working across so many different fields. I mean, how, how can that be? How can that be? And yeah, I have an appointment in computer science. Well, how did I get that? Well, we were building what we were calling a synthetic brain, and I had to change the name because DARPA thought it would get too much bad press. And then years later, they had a synthetic brain program. But we were programming a molecular computer, and it was just too complex of a problem. And I presented it to my colleagues in the computer science department. They said, you'd, you'd never be able to solve that. And then, because it was a, it, it was a series of non nonlinear differential equations. So it's very, very hard to solve. And so there were these two students, that, there were a couple, and, and they were leaving the university with their master's degree from computer and applied mathematics. And they were very good, but the, the, the young man felt that there wasn't any challenge, anything challenging in school for him. And so I went to their home and I, I said, please come and work for me. And, and uh, um, he was one of the, he was an amazing guy. And his wife could take his disheveled thoughts and package them. And so I said, just come do, do your PhDs with me and, and we'll solve this thing. I didn't tell them that my colleagues in computer science said it was unsolvable and they solved it. So then I got an appointment in computer science <laughs> and I, I, and, and I sporadically taught in that department. But, but, um, uh, so God gives us wisdom and knowledge and insight across all these different disciplines when we ask of him. So I pray for creativity all the time. I said, Lord, make me creative and not just me, my students. I said, make my students creative because, you know, we publish the papers. I publish the papers with them. But people only remember my name. <laughs> they don't remember the students on the paper. I mean, it, it's, so, it's so unfair. But, that's, but they teach me so much too. And I learn from them. And there's, there's all these advances we have and all these blessings we have. So I just say, Lord... If I were a farmer, I would pray that you would, you would bless my crop and cause it to multiply. I pray that you'd protect my barn so that it doesn't burn down. I said, Lord, I'm not a farmer. I'm just a chemist. So, Lord, you've got to help me here where I live in my chemistry. And he glories in helping me. He glories in it. And I, I feel like when I, when I go to work, I feel like, Lord... What are we going to discover today? I have students, they come in, if, if they're unbelievers, I'll say, do you mind if I just pray over this data? I don't understand it. I'll just pray right there. If they're believers, i say, let's just get down on our knees and implore God to teach us. Just implore God to teach us. Teach us what we have to do. I, I remember getting on my knees and praying when we were going after that spinal cord thing. And boom, and look what happened. I mean, we, we, did, we just thought we'd... we'd Solve the swelling problem. We didn't know we'd, we'd make the wa them walk again in two weeks. I mean, but God knew. God knew. 
So I call upon him all the time in my work. All the time. Give me creativity because in my business, creativity is what makes you shine. It's creative. It's not how smart you are. It's your creativity. Questions? Yes. I had a friend that passed away from glioblastoma. Yeah. Yeah, I've worked on that. I've had sev- have several patents on that. So we've taken carbon nanoparticles and we we've delivered cocktails to these. Glioblastoma is the nastiest of cancers. It, it usually will take a life within 16 months of diagnosis. Uh, you can look at those cells in a dish and they will just grow right outside the dish. I mean, the only thing you can, you, you can cut them out faster than they grow, but that's about it. They grow so fast. Very aggressive cells. And so, so uh, we took cocktails of different known drugs with proton pump inhibitors because once you've been treated with a drug, the cells get smart and they, they see that drug again coming at them and they just poof, they pump it back out. It gets in the cell, they pump it back out. And so we, we shut down the proton pumps. I think that our nanomachines are going to be the way to go because there's no battling those things. Those things latch on and then we just turn them on. They don't do anything till we turn them on. So I know a little bit about glioblastoma, several patents in the area. But that's a tough one. It's a tough form of cancer. And I don't have the answer for all of these things. And these are uh, a decade or two away. So it's not like I have the solution anytime soon. Um, uh, but we're, we work in that area. Yes? I guarantee you, you will have success because the Bible promises it. But success can very much look like a trial from the, through the world would look like trial after trial. But you see people with the quality of life that have taken hold of God, and there is a richness in their lives in the midst of that pain. I know people look at the outside and they say, wow, you know, you've had all of this. They don't know my pain. They don't know my struggles. Whatever struggles you have, I've probably shared some of that. I've probably shared some. But as I said, he keeps me from the despair of suffering. That he does. I don't understand it. When a person loses a child, child gets cancer, and you see that sort of pain. I live in Houston where we have MD Anderson Cancer Center. My, the, the, the congregation that I go to has a huge ministry to those who are coming in for treatment. We have homes that they can stay in for free. And so I, I see a lot of death. There's a lot of people we pray for that, 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 that don't live. But I see a quality of life in them that's inexplicable from the world's perspective. Because God brings an amazing sort of peace. God's grace is sufficient. That's all I can say. All I can testify of is what the scriptures say. But you're right. The scriptures say there are men who wandered in caves and hills and holes in the ground. They wore sheepskins and goatskins. But they were men of whom the world was not worthy in Hebrews chapter 11. Men of whom the world was not worthy. These men underwent tremendous persecutions. But the Bible says the world wasn't worthy of them because of the quality that was in their lives. That is a life of success. If God is going to in the end deem the world wasn't worthy of this life. So I did not grow up in an observant home. We were quite a, a secular home. And that made it easier for me to come to the Lord because we were not taught against Jesus. Most Jewish homes, 
you will never, you rarely speak to a Jew about the Lord and be dealing with a clean slate. You speak to a Chinese student about the Lord and you're dealing with a clean slate. They've never heard anything negative about Jesus. And it's much easier for them to come to the Lord. Jewish kids, it's much, Jewish young people, Jewish people, it's much harder because we're trained against Jesus. It's in our literature to be against Jesus. It's in our rabbinic teaching to be against Jesus. So, so it makes it much harder. We, we never spoke about God in my home. We never spoke about Jesus in my home. So when somebody told me that he wanted to share with me a presentation of, of the gospel, I said, sure. Didn't bother me. When he mentioned the name Jesus, I wasn't like, oh. Didn't bother me a bit. So um, uh, my, my family was not excited. I remember my cousin saying, hey, what do you mean you became a Christian? You can't. You're Jewish. <laughs> and... And my parents didn't say much to me, and they've told me why they never said much to me. Is they, they said, you know, your brother's been through things, your sister's been through things, but we thought it was just a fad. We thought just, just you know, teenagers go through things. Just let it go, it'll pass. Um, my mother, at the age of 70, came to know, know the Lord. My father still does not know the Lord. And neither do my brother and my sister. But, but they've told me it was very hard on them. No, I don't, I don't pray on my knees in my chemistry class. I don't pray in my chemistry class. No prayers in my chemistry class. I don't pray. The only prayers I offer up are quietly from me to the Lord. Um, and, and, and I suppose from the students on exams imploring God for help. <laughs> but but in, the, in the Bible study class that I teach to college students, of which there's 150, I always pray on my knees before and after. That's just the way I pray. Well, you know, I've never gone to a Christian university, so I don't know how it is right now. For all I know, you could get on your knees before you pray in every, before you start every class and you end on your knees, for all I know. So I, I don't know how it is. Um, I suppose it would be something like whenever I'm... When, oh, okay, so in college classes, when I'm, when I'm asked to speak, say, at Navigators or Campus Crusade or Chi Alpha, one of the campus groups, I'll always get on my knees and I will... Give them the gospel and the word of God as strongly as I possibly can. I will, I will, I will take myself and throw my whole self into it and, and, uh, and try to do that. Now, I'm not coming against anybody in Bible, in Bible college. Could I do that every day, day after day? You know, four or five classes a week like you guys teach? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that it'd be any different. But um, I have no idea. I've never done it. Okay, well, thank you so much for the invitation.